Chapter 27 of Cripps the Carrier by Richard Doddridge Blackmore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 27 Rats. Meanwhile, at Shotover Grange, as well as at poor old Beckley Barton, trouble was prevailing and the usual style of things upset. Russell Overshoot, though not beloved by everybody, because of his strong will and words, was at any rate thought much of and would be sadly missed by all. All the women of the household made an idol of him. He spoke so kindly and said thank you when many men would have grunted, and he did not seem to be aware of any padlocked bar of humanity betwixt him and his inferiors. At the same time he took no liberty any more than he invited it, and this fine appearance and strength of readiness made him look the master. The men, on the other hand, were not sure of their sorrow to see less of him. He had always kept a keen eye on them, as the master of a large house ought to do, and he always bore in mind the great truth that men on the whole are much lazier than women. Still, even the worst man about the place, while he freely took advantage of the present sweet immunity, would have been sorry to hear of a thing which might drive him to seek for another place. But what were all these, even all put together in the weight of their feelings, to compare with the mother of young Overshoot? Many might cry, but none would mourn. Nobody could have any right to mourn except herself, his mother. This was her son, and her only hope. If it pleased the Lord to rob her of him, he might as well take her soon afterwards, without any more to do. This middle-aged lady was not pious, and made no pretense to be so. Her opinion was that the Lord awarded things according to what people do, and left them at liberty to carry on, without any great interference. She knew that she always had been superfluously able to manage her own affairs, and to hear weak ladies going on and on about the will of the Lord, and so forth. Sometimes it was a trial to her manners and hospitality. In this terrible illness of her son she had plenty of self-command, but very little resignation. With stern activity and self-devotion, she watched him by day and by night so jealously that the nurses took offense and, fearing contagion, kept their distance, though they drew their wages. This was the time to show what stuff both men and women were made of, fair-weather visitors and delightful gossips and the most devoted friends stood far aloof from the tainted gale and fumigated their letters. The best of them sent their grooms to the lodge, with orders to be very careful and to be sure to use tobacco during the moment of colloquy. Others had so much faith that everything would be ordered for the best that they went to the seaside at once to be delivered from presumption. Many saw a visitation for some secret sin that otherwise might have festered inwardly and destroyed the immortal part. Of course they would not even hint that he could have murdered Grace Oglander. Nothing was further from their thoughts. The idea was much too terrible. Still, there were many things that long had called for explanation, and none had been afforded. Leaving these to go their way, a few kind souls came fluttering to the house of pestilence and death. Two housemaids and the boy who cleaned the servant's shoes had been struck down and never rose again, except with very cautious liftings to their last narrow cells. The disease had spread from their master, and their constitutions were not like his. Also the senior footman and the undercook were in their beds, 
but people who had their work to do believed them to be only shamming. The master, however, still fought on without any knowledge of the conflict. His mind was beyond all the guidance of will and afar from its wounded subjects. It roved among the clouds that had been blown away, nebules of logic, dialectic fogs and thunderstorms of enthymeme and the pelting of sauritic hail and all the other perturbed condition of the undergraduate weather. In these things, unlike his friend Hardenau, he had never taken delight, and now they rose up to avenge themselves. At other times the poor fellow lay in depths of deepest lethargy, voiceless, motionless, and almost breathless. None but his mother would believe sometimes that he was not downright dead and gone. Of course Mrs. Overshoot had called in the best advice to be had from the whole of the great profession of medicine. The roughness of the Alberthany school was still in vogue with country doctors, and even now some of it may be found in a craft which ought to be gentle in proportion to its hopelessness. With timid people this roughness goes a long way towards creating faith, and makes them try to get better for fear of being insulted about it. In London, however, this centuric school of medicine had not thriven, when the rude Nessus could not heal himself. A soft and soothing gentle race of Esculpians arose. The vis medicatrix nature was exalted and fed with calves' feet, and the hand of velvet and the tongue of silver commended and sweetened the pill of bread. At the head of this pleasing and amiable band, who seldom either killed or cured, was the famous Sir Anthony Thistledown. This was the great physician who had been invoked from London to the strong disgust of splinters, and the foremost light at Oxford, when Squire Oglander was seized with his very serious illness, and now Sir Anthony did his best, with the aid of the reconciled splinters, to soothe away death from the weary couch of the last of the race of overshoot. A pretty story I heard in Oxford today made me ashamed at oath, said Zachary Cripps to his sister Eddie, while he smoked his contemplative pipe by the fire of stow logs one cold and windy April evening. What do you think they've a been endued? Who and where, Zach? How can I tell? Esther was busy trimming three rashers before she put them into the frying pan. I really do believe you expect me to know everybody that comes to your thoughts quite as if it was in my own mind. Well, so you ought, said the carrier. The women nowadays are so sharp, and no man can have his own mind to himself. But anyhow, you ought to know that I mean up to the poor worship overshoots. Ah, fine young gentleman as ever lived. Seemeth to be no more than last night as he sat in that there chair and said the queerest thing as ever were said by a justice to the county bench. What do you mean, Zack? I never heard him say anything but was kind and proper and a credit to him. Might be proper or might not, but anyhow, twere impossible. Did it tell me or did it not he would try to go a-poachin'? When folk begins to talk like that, tis a sign of the ill come over them. Ah's me, tis little he'll ever do a-poachin'. Or shutting, or riding to the hounds, or tasting again of my best bottle. Bad enough job it be about old Squire, but, but he be an old man in a way of speaking. Well, the Lord he knoweth best, and us be all in the hollow of his hand. 
but he were a fine young fellow, as fine a young fellow as I ever see, and not a bit of pride about him. Sadly reflecting, the carrier stopped his pipe with a twig from the fireplace and gazed at the soot because his eyes were bright. But what were you going to tell me? said Eddie, bringing her brother back to his subject as she often was obliged to do. Rally, I'd be almost ashamed to tell ye for such a thing to come to pass in our own county, and almost the same parish, and only two turnpike gates atween. What do ye think of every soul in that there house running right away, without no notice, nor so much as a good-bye? One and all of them, one and all. So I were told by a truthful man. And a poor old lady with her dying son, and not a single blessed woman for to make the pap. I never can believe that they would be such cowards, Esther answered as she left her work and came to look at Zachary. Men might, but women never, I should hope. And such a kind, good house it is. Oh, Zach, it must be a wicked story. It is true enough, Eddie, and too true. As I was a-coming home, I seed five on em standing all together under the elms by Magdalen College. Their friends would not take them in, I was told, and nobody wouldn't go nigh on them. Perhaps they were sorry they had doed it then. The wretches! They ought to sleep out in the rain, without even a pigsty for shelter. Now, Zack, I never do anything without you. But to Shotover Grange I go to-night, unless you bar the door on me, and if you do, I will get out of a window." Esther, I never heard tell of such a thing. If you was under a duty, well and good, but to fly into the face of the Lord like that, without no call upon you. There is a call upon me, she answered, flushing with calm resolution. It is the Lord that calls me, Zack, and he will send me back again. Now, you shall have your supper while you think it over quietly. I will not go without your leave, brother, but I am sure you will give it when you come to think. The carrier, while he munched his bacon and drank his quart of home-brewed ale, was in his quiet mind more troubled than he had ever been before, or at any rate, since he used to pass the tent of young Cinnaminta. That was the one great romance of his life, and since he had quelled it with his sturdy strength, and looked round the world as usual, scarcely any trouble worse than pence and half-pence had been on him. From week to week and year to year he had worked a cheerful road of life, breathing the fine air, looking at the sights, feeling as little as need be felt the influence of nature, making new friends all along his beat, even quicker than the old ones went their way, carrying on a very decent trade, highly respecting the powers that be, and highly respected by them. But now he found suddenly brought before him a matter for consideration, which in his ordinary state of mind would have circulated for a fortnight. Precipitance of mind to him was worse than driving down a quarry. His practice had always been, and now it was become his habit to turn every question inside out and upside down, and across and across, and finger every seam of it as if he were buying a second-hand sack, ere ever he began to trust his way to any side of it, to do all this required some hours with a mind so unelectric, and even after that he liked to have a good night's sleep and find the core of his resolve set hard in the morning. For this due process there was now no time. He dared not even to begin it, 
knowing that it could not be wrought out. Therefore he betook himself to a plan which once before had served him well. After groping at the bottom of a sacred pocket, where sample beans and scarlet runners got into the loops of keys, and bits of whipcord were wound tightly round old turnpike tickets, and a little shoemaker's awl in a cork kept company with a shoe-pick, Master Cripps, with his blunt-headed fingers, got hold of a crooked sixpence. The bend alone would have only conferred a simple charm upon it, but when to the bend there was added a hole, that sixpence became Delphic. Cripps had consulted it once before when a quick-tempered farmer hurried him concerning the purchase of a rick of hay. The carrier had no superstition, but he greatly abounded with gratitude, and having made a great hit about that rick, the least he could do to the sixpence was to consult it again under similar hurry. He said to himself, Now the Lord send me right. If you comes out heads, little Eddie shall go. If you comes out tails... I shall take it for a sign that we ought to turn tails in this ear job. He said no more, but with great extrication worked his oracular sixpence up through a rattle of obstructions, like the lots cast in a steep-headed man's helmet. Up came the sixpence reluctantly. I have got ye. Now what dost thou say? said Cripps with the triumph of an obstinate man. Never a lie hast thou told me yet. Spake up, little fellow. Being thus adjured, the crooked sixpence and gratitude for much friction gleamed softly in the firelight. But even the carrier, keen as his eyes were, could not make out head or tail. Fetch me a candle in the looking-glass, he called out to Esther, the looking-glass being a large old lens, which had been left behind by Hardenau. Esther brought both in about half a minute and Cripps, with the little coin sternly sitting as flatly in his palm as its form allowed, began to examine it carefully, with one eye shut as if firing a gun. He tried the lens at every distance from a foot to half an inch, shifting the candle about until some of his frizzly hair took fire, and with this assistance he exclaimed at last, Heads, child! Heads it is! Thou shalt go! The will of the Lord ordaineth it! Please the Lord to send thee back safe and sound as now thou goest. None on us, to my knowledge, has done aught to deserve to be punished for. End of chapter 27